Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in. Are you? Hello, everyone. So good to have you here at Fits on Fantasy. Welcome in. Kick off your shoes. Make yourself comfortable. Maybe spritz on a little of the hand sanitizer on the coffee table, if you don't mind. Joining me now is Dave Cabin. He's a senior fantasy analyst at Rotoviz and co-host of the Rotoviz Radio podcast, along with Matthew Friedman. Find him on Twitter at DaveCabinFF. Great to have you here, Dave. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Uh, great to be here, Pat. Um, really am looking forward to having the opportunity to uh, talk with somebody other than Friedman about some uh, football, some fantasy football. Um, you know, I've been listening to the show, so it's, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, well, thanks, man. Yeah, always good to get away from Friedman for a little while. Uh, I don't blame you for for enjoying that. Um, but before we do dive into football, Dave, uh I have to ask how you and the family are handling the quarantine life so far. You know, honestly, we're very fortunate. Um, we've been handling it uh, pretty well. You know, the, the joke in my family is with me being such a big introvert that I've been social distancing myself for years. Um, so I've, I've truly been practicing social distancing. Um, so for me, you know, I've been I've been pretty much fine. Uh, I have a three-year-old daughter. She seems to be pretty ad- adaptable. So she's been doing fine with it. You know, my wife, I think, misses taking her to the park, to the library, doing things like that. Um, But, you know, overall, it's had some benefits. I've been able to have lunch with her every day, you know, go down, visit her for a couple minutes here and there. Um, So, you know, I really, you know, personally can't really complain that much. You know, we've been pretty fortunate. Oh, that's good, man. Yeah, my kids are a little older. And, uh, you know, I've expressed to my wife that I'm so glad this didn't happen when our kids were like three and four. So uh, glad yours is so adaptable and, um, you know, that she is not going completely stir crazy or maybe she's going somewhat stir crazy. Who would you say is the most stir crazy in the family these days? I I think it's it's probably my wife. Um, And then, of course, you know, her mother doesn't live with us, but she definitely is, is getting withdrawals from not seeing Elise, uh, you know, her granddaughter. So I'm sure that's something that's been hard for a lot of the grandparents out there, you know, only being able to talk to them on the phone or on FaceTime and what have you. Oh, definitely, man. The uh, Zoom calls with the grandparents are not a, an adequate substitute for the hugs. And um, yeah, God bless to uh, all the grandparents out there. I know it's it's kind of a rough time for them. So hopefully they're hanging in. Um, all right, Dave, let's turn our attention to the recent NFL draft and this year's rookie class. Rotoviz has always been such a great resource for people who play in dynasty leagues. And you guys always do a lot of articles and pods on the incoming rookies. And in fact, you and Matt Friedman have dug into this rookie class pretty deeply on your last couple of shows. Let me ask you this based on the banter you've seen on Twitter and with early ADP information, which rookie landing spot do you believe to be the most overrated? Well, uh, you know, it pains me to say, and I was hoping that we'd be able to talk about him a little bit later. It's a player that I really liked. I think I was maybe higher on him than most. I was getting very excited because I thought I'd be able to get him at a discount, but that player is Keyshawn Vaughn. You know, I really liked the profile given a 700 plus yard six touchdown season as a freshman at Illinois. We then see him move to Vanderbilt in his final two seasons there in the SEC with that different team. I think he had around 24 touchdowns, 2000 yard seasons. There was a lot to like a plus 100 speed score. And then in a new metric I rolled out this year uh, called breakaway rush score, which is actually been proven to be a little bit more predictive than speed score, which had always been the thing we focused most heavily on. He actually performed really strongly in that metric as well. Second highest score in the class. So this was a player I was feeling really good about. 
I was expecting that we would probably see him get drafted in late round three, maybe round four of the NFL draft, which I thought would leave him as a player that could kind of be a diamond in the rough, given the overall strength of the class this year at both running back and wide receiver. Of course, we see him go to Tampa Bay, a team that is generating a lot of excitement via Tom Brady being there and also a number of people more or less writing off Ronald Jones and the outlook on the rest of his career. Uh, So I was really excited for Keyshawn Vaughn at first, but then when I realized that a lot of people were viewing this as such a great landing spot, that was disappointing. But Matt and I on our show talked about this recently that we're not really convinced that uh, this is as great of a landing spot as people want to make it out to be. Uh, There's a couple of factors going into this. I think the biggest one or the one I want to start with first is the incorporation of Tom Brady into that Tampa Bay offense. I don't know that that necessarily makes the running back position on that team all that more valuable when you consider the red zone options that they do have, that they have arguably the best wide receiver duo in the league. They're not necessarily going to need to rely on the running back position. Um, You know, perhaps game script will generally be in favor of the running back, but this was a team that was middle of the road and running back expected points last season, both receiving and rushing. And I'm just not sure that Tom Brady being there really changes the outlook that you would have for the running back position there, especially when when you consider that Ronald Jones last year, over 700 rushing yards, six touchdowns, 31 receptions, which was supposed to be the thing that he struggles with being a receiver, over 300 yards. That's more than a thousand total yards from scrimmage. That really isn't that bad of a season. So Vaughn needs to come in and really push him out of the way to fill that first round valuation people are now putting on him. The other thing that we've talked about is Vaughn is 91 days older than Ronald Jones. That's a late start in the league, which is something at Rotoviz we'd be very worried about to begin with. Then you compare the college careers between Jones and Vaughn. Jones at every point in his career outperformed Vaughn and did it at a much younger age. Now, perhaps the age doesn't matter that much in the case of Vaughn. Maybe he is better than Jones, but the hit rate for a prospect like Vaughn is really low entering the league at 23. So, you know, it was disappointing for me in that now he is getting overvalued. And though I was excited that he gets drafted in the third round, I'm not sure that it's as much of a slam dunk as people want to think. Yeah. And what you guys talked about on the podcast is not necessarily that, you know, Vaughn is looking like a a sucker play that he's going to be a total bust. I mean, there is some opportunity here considering that Jones hasn't been able to seize the job, uh, you know, by the the lapels and, and just take it for himself. But the fact that he, in uh, rookie dynasty ADP, he is going like around 108 or, or 109 or so. That puts him kind of in the the Jerry Judy, CD Lamb neighborhood. Maybe ahead of Jalen Rager, maybe ahead of uh, Justin Jefferson, Lavisca Chenault. Some really good wide receivers in a just an epic wide receiver class. So you know, maybe it's it's sort of the position where he's going, as you guys said, and and you know, not that he's a bad prospect, but just Maybe it's kind of an overrated landing spot. And the other thing, if Sean Siegel of Rotoviz is still holding out hope for Ronald Jones, that makes me really reluctant to bury Ronald Jones and uh, think that this is automatically going to be Vaughn's job. So that's a major concern. And if Vaughn is just a part-time player and you're taking him ahead of the Jalen Ragers or Justin Jeffersons, I mean, that seems like a big mistake to me. Yeah, I I mean... (laughs) <laughs> like, I don't think at this point that Sean or or Matt, because Matt still, re- you know, believes that Jones has a career in the NFL. I don't think that either of them are expecting that we're all of a sudden going to see Ronald Jones become a top three, top five back or anything like that. But they're both expecting that there is a solid career for him that could manifest. Um, and, you know, they're two of the 
sharpest people in this whole industry. You know, they're just so smart that when they're considering that, you know, I'm going to pay attention to it. Uh, and, and, you know, my final thought here is you're drafting in dynasty. And when you're comparing to these wide receivers, we know that we're probably going to get less useful seasons out of the running back to begin with. And if any of your, if you're a draft out there, if any of your enthusiasm for Vaughn is being driven by Tom Brady being in Tampa Bay, remember that that could be fleeting. We really don't know how long he's going to be there and just how good this team could be with him in Tampa. So, you know, just another thing to be cautious about. Yeah, that's a good point. And you guys brought that up in a recent podcast too with Adam Troutman, the rookie tight end prospect going to New Orleans. Well, we know that it's kind of a sucker to play to bet on rookie tight ends doing anything right away. And, you know, if we're playing the long game with Troutman, Breeze really isn't going to be there more than another season, possibly two. So, um, you know, to, to think that's like a dream landing spot for Troutman is, is sort of a mirage, perhaps. Um, what about underrated landing spots, Dave? Is there anyone you think who's gone to a spot where maybe they have, uh, you know, more opportunity than meets the eye initially? Yeah, for sure. And um, <laughs> Matt and I, I think this was another one that we may have talked about on the show. We might have just been been catching up after that we kind of arrived at that it's Van Jefferson is just not getting enough attention with the Rams. And I think that a large piece of this comes from the fact that there wasn't much conversation about him heading into the draft. And honestly, his profile never really caught my eye. But we see him get drafted at pick 57 by the Rams in round two. That's something that we just can't gloss over. Uh, we know that draft position is so important for a wide receiver. And yes, there's Robert Woods there. There's Cooper Cup. Josh Reynolds has seen usage and been relevant at points, but this team, even with those receivers, went out, got him at pick 57. We know that they've said they view him as a cross between Cup and Woods. They're planning on training him for the roles of Woods, Cooks, and Reynolds, uh, which, you know, sometimes there's coach speak, but they did go out there and get him in the second round. I think it shows that they have a plan for him. This is a team that ranks second in wide receiver targets last season, four in wide receiver yards, second and wide receiver expected points. Now, maybe there's not that high of a percentage of those targets available for him now, but Wood's contract ends in 21. Cup is up at the end of the season, Reynolds as well. So maybe this is a long-term play. Uh, you know, like I said, his profile didn't really draw my attention. He was an older prospect, pretty weak production, but this landing spot might be pretty good. And what I view Van Jefferson to be and how good I think he might be probably isn't as important as what LA thinks because as long as he does have some requisite ability if they value him like this and they're willing to, to use him I think that we need to be paying more attention to a player like that yeah that was really eye-opening when the Rams took him and um you know I, I kind of had figured that the Jets were going to get him maybe later in the draft third or fourth round with uh, Van Jefferson's dad being the wide receivers coach of the Jets. Just seemed like that would be a natural fit, obviously. And um, yeah, for the Rams to move so aggressively and, and get him in the second, uh, that is pretty telling. So uh, that's a pretty interesting spot and a guy not a lot of people are really talking about in Dynasty rookie drafts. It seems like, you know, he's a guy still available in the third round of most Dynasty rookie drafts. Um where else have you been planning your flags with this year's rookies? Have you done any dynasty rookie drafts yet? Yeah, so I've been in a couple of drafts, but um, I actually tend to try and trade out of a lot of my picks just because I, I kind of am of the opinion that once you get outside of the first and second round, your probability of getting the value on a rookie, even in the long term, is maybe not as good as moving that pick for a substantial veteran or a player that has been in the league maybe one or two years, that you can kind of start to see that there's some signal they will be able to cut it. Um, so I haven't had that many picks this year. Having said that, I guess you could say a player I've definitely 
uh, been targeting is Jonathan Taylor. Um, you know, I have to assume that for a lot of people, that's not a surprise that they'd be going after him. Um, so that's maybe like a chalk play. I have been able to get uh, LaVisca Chenault, though, which I, I like because he's not going as high as some of these other receivers, given how strong this class is. But I think he does have a tremendous amount of upside. Um, and then, of course, there is my boy Keyshawn Vaughn, who I haven't been able to get anything of now, but I was much higher on him than most. So, you know, sometimes it's just how it goes. Yeah, that's uh boy, I'm I'm very much in step with your thinking. In fact, I've got a draft coming up where I'm gonna be drafting 102 and 202, and I would love to come away with the Jonathan Taylor LaVisca Chanel combo. That's kind of been my my plan all along. We'll see if I'm able to pull, pull it off. Um all right, Dave, I know you're a Patriots fan living in southern New Hampshire, and uh, the last half dozen or so episodes of this podcast have dealt at length with this rookie class, and yet I have not spent much time talking to my guests about this thoroughly uninspiring tight end class. You know, I think the 30-second uh, conversation we had about um, Troutman a second ago was about equal to the total time I've spent on these guys on, on recent shows, but your Patriots drank deeply from the tight end spigot in this draft. And you spent some time talking about new Patriot tight ends, uh, Devin Asiasi and Dalton Keene on your podcast. All right. So maybe it's not going to be quite as impactful as the Rob Gronkowski, Aaron Hernandez duo, uh, new England drafted Gronk and Hernandez in 2010, 10 years ago in the second and fourth rounds respectively. Uh, Asiasi and Keen were both third rounders. Did you and Friedman decide which of these guys you prefer? Um, you know, I actually don't think that I had arrived at my preference when, when he and I talked it through originally. I have since come around to preferring Dalton Keen. Uh, you know, he's a player that has a pretty solid uh, tight end breakout age, better um, than Asiasi, and also he's just more athletic, actually, in the 70th percentile at everything at the combine. Um, so if I have to choose between the two, I think I'm going with him. Having said that, my level of excitement for these guys just really isn't that high. Um, it it kind of goes along the line of thinking that you alluded to earlier, which is the tight end position in New England is one that gets viewed as having a fair amount of value. Neither of these players even come close to sniffing what Aaron Hernandez was able to do. Neither of them you can expect is going to be a Hall of Fame tight end receiving passes from a Hall of Fame quarterback. Uh, so while people might be inclined to think that maybe Belichick has a preference for utilizing the tight end or in the system there's going to be a return to value eventually. I just don't know if that makes sense. We don't know what the identity of this team is going to look like. We don't know what the quarterback play is going to look like. And also, we do know that tight end is a very slowly developing position. Uh, these are two tight ends that didn't draw much interest based on their profiles heading into the draft. So I'm just not going to get that excited. Um, you know, we saw so much excitement over Kobe Fleener when Jimmy Graham left. Well, Kobe Fleener isn't a Hall of Fame tight end like Jimmy Graham. Um, and you could maybe spin the narrative back then that there was this ability of Drew Brees with a tight end position, but I think it was probably more so you have a great passer who had a, a player receiving those passes with great ability. So I can understand why people would want to get excited, but... I just really can't get on board with it. There's just too many questions. Um, but I guess to close, if you do want to take a shot on it, I think that Keen is probably the player you take it with. How are you feeling about the dawn of the Jarrett Stidham era? Or or do you feel like there's still a chance the Patriots go out and sign Cam Newton or make some other move at quarterback? Um, I think the chances that they go and they get Cam are about as close to zero as you can get. I, I think that this is a very pragmatic head coach, a very pragmatic organization. And as large of a Patriots fan as I am, I have to assume that this team does not feel that they can make a deep run in the playoffs this year. Um, 
And that's probably regardless of, of who it is, right? Which I think is one of the reasons that the team will go with Stidham. And I think that people could say the fact that Belichick and the team are sticking with him, at least at this point, assuming that he's the starter, that's a sign that they feel good about him. I don't think that means that he's their guy. I think it just means that the financial outlay it would take to bring in another body at quarterback uh, isn't really worth it. Because even if you bring in Andy Dalton, who I think would have been the better option, it's hard for me to picture the team picking up an extra more than maybe an extra two wins and going far into the playoffs. So it's kind of like you're better off rolling out Stidham seeing what you can get from him, perhaps you can then trade him like they've tried to do in the past. I think the the other thing to keep in mind here too is Stidham was not a second rounder like Jimmy G was. Team drafted him in round four, pick 31. Uh, the things that I look for in a passer, I look at their depth of target coming out of college. I look at their quarterback completion percentage, QBR. Not a strong QBR for Stidham. QBR, not strong. Okay in the yards, okay in the touchdowns. But overall, he just projects to me as a guy that is maybe a backup and not a long-term solution. Um, So that's another reason that I'm just not entirely sold or have a good idea of what to expect from this Patriots team heading forward. And I I suppose if you're a Patriots fan, I don't know, what what does this feel like to you? Does it feel like almost, I don't want to say relief, but almost like you're you're pushing yourself away from the Thanksgiving dinner table, like you're full and uh, you're just going to let this digest for a while. You know, you're probably not going to go and get another couple of Super Bowl titles in the next few years, but you're satisfied and, uh, you know, maybe it's just time to rest for a while. Yeah, I mean that that's a I think a really good analogy to sum this up. I mean, it's just been such a tremendous run that you just have to feel so fortunate that you managed to uh like especially for me, I got this in like the really formative years of my life. So I think, you know, all of this this started when I was in 8th grade and it's gone and lasted until now, you know. Um with like a 3-year-old, which is absolutely insane. So it's like I, I you know, it had to come to an end at some point. It's just amazing. It lasted so long. And, you know, instead of like, um, feeling like we should have been able to pull out another one or two, which I'm sure most fan bases are like, Oh my God, I can't, I can't believe you'd even be thinking about that. Um, there also is now an excitement about seeing this team try to do it again and start to move forward. Uh, but it is going to be really, really odd this year with like an entirely, even though the team hasn't been, the same that it was going back, you know, like to the the heyday, maybe seven or eight years. Uh, it's going to feel very weird when you don't have Brady back there. Well, one of their next gen guys is uh, Nikhil Harry. And what what is your opinion of him after sort of a, I don't know, a blank rookie year? I don't want to say disappointment, um, or, or maybe you would say disappointment, but it, it seemed like there were, you know, some injury setbacks that maybe kind of kept him from popping, but he did kind of show up late in the season. Um, You know, are you still generally optimistic here? Yeah, I am. So I really liked him coming out of school. He was my number two behind AJ Brown. Um, I think he has a terrific profile, Um, a lot of production in college, great breakout age. I think like you said, there were some injuries factoring in. I think that he had trouble getting on page with Brady, who kind of has the reputation around here of if you don't make that impression right away and get on his good side, he's okay kind of phasing you out. He's going to have a new chance now. I think that he's one of the better offensive players that we have. So I'm actually feeling good about his outlook. I don't think that we should latch on to what happened last year. I don't think that there's anything you can point to with him that really shows that he can't cut it in this league. So my opinion of him hasn't really changed too much. And one of the great things right now is if you're in a startup, you're going to see a lot of the rookies that had profiles that pale in comparison to his getting drafted in front of him. He's probably one of those guys I think it's worth trying to go and get on your team um, by leveraging some of the other youth that you have for a player that were only one year removed from being a first rounder and very deservedly so in rookie drafts. I just got him really late in a dynasty startup draft. I want to say like something just absurdly 
15th or, or 16th round or something like he was just a completely forgotten man. Wow. And, um, yeah, it, it was really nuts. I mean, people just totally overlooked him and maybe just didn't realize how good a prospect he was coming out last year. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's going to be a, a hit for him. You know, one of these coming years, it might be a little tough while while the Patriots find their way at quarterback this year. But, um, you know, I'm still pretty optimistic as well. Uh, do you think that Damian Harris becomes fantasy relevant in year two? Or do you think Sony Michelle and James White are still going to handle most of the work? This is kind of a nuanced answer for me. Um, I think the first thing that people should probably understand with this team is that Harris's ability to get involved is probably going to depend on what they do at special teams. Um, so with the way the depth chart is looking right now, we don't know if Bolden and Burkhead are both going to come back exactly how that's going to shake out. I think that he will have the opportunity to start suiting up in year two. Um, I think there's going to be a fantasy relevant stretch when it comes though. I have no idea. So I think you're going to get more production out of Michelle and James White, um, you know, I don't know if dominate the backfield is the right word, but I think that we'll see them getting the majority of the usage for a larger portion of the season. And then we might get that game or two from Harris that starts to get us excited. And then maybe year three is the year. Um, but I wouldn't say that I have a very strong feeling on this either way. Um, so maybe if you're doing a lot of best ball teams, you know, you sprinkle him in on some of your teams in the later rounds, but I, I don't think that I'd be aggressively targeting him either. Yeah. It's tricky with him having done so little and, and having not really carved out any sort of role yet in year one. And now what do we do with him in year two, even though we sort of had optimism about him coming out of Alabama, um, you know, started ahead of Josh Jacobs and obviously Jacobs had a, a terrific rookie season. So, um, yeah, I would say uh, keep the, the candle lit for him. But, um, you know, like you said, it, in best balls, maybe worth getting him on at least one team somewhere in case he pops. So Brady has left New England for Tampa, and now there seems to be all this enthusiasm for the Buccaneers offense. And we're seeing it not only with ADPs, but also with the number of primetime games the Buccaneers got on this year's schedule. Uh, as a Patriots fan, Dave, you no doubt have some warm, fuzzy feelings about Brady, but as a cold and stone-hearted fantasy analyst, do you worry about investing in an offense being triggered by a quarterback who's going to be 43 when the season begins? You know, it's, it's interesting for me because I don't know if I'm actually that big of a fan of Brady. Like, I am definitely a big supporter of the idea that he is the best quarterback that there's ever been and that he was unbelievable. Um, but I think I'm, I'm able to think about this more rationally than I would have expected, uh, you know, prior to him leaving the team. Having said that, um, I think that as far as Mike Evans and Chris Godwin go, I'm really not concerned because I think that they're both such good players that it doesn't matter if Tom Brady isn't the player that we saw for those stretches where he really was the best player or the best quarterback in the league, uh, you know, not the best season ever from him last year. We still did see him, though, be accurate. Um, you know, he had more than 17% of his attempts going beyond 15 yards last season. As a point of reference, Matt Ryan was at 18%. So it's not like he was going overly conservative. Um, at the very least, I think Brady should be able to manage the Tampa Bay offense in a way that their players have enough opportunity. Um, like I said, I think Evans and Godwin are so good, it doesn't necessarily matter. For the rest of the team, I don't know if Brady being there is really that much of a boost. I still think he has what's needed to allow those players to more or less be at the level they would have been last year. Uh, the interesting counterpoint to all of this, though, that somebody might bring up, I think, is that does Jameis Winston not being there actually hurt these players when you take away the opportunity he creates for them via the interceptions. Maybe they don't have much opportunity. However, though, and um, this was a really interesting thing, I, I think, to look up. So that's like an interesting point that could make sense. But when you actually look at the splits and you do your split based upon Jameis throwing one or zero interceptions uh, versus him throwing more. Mike Evans actually averaged 17.2 points 
versus 15.5 when Winston didn't throw the multiple interceptions. Uh, Chris Godwin has a split of 11.3 points in the low games and 13.7 when Jameis threw a lot of picks. However, though, there's a smaller overall sample. So you have the 30 interceptions from last season kind of corrupting your, your view on that split. But if you look even at just 2019, Godwin actually went for 20.8 points, uh, more yards, more targets, more touchdowns in the seven games where Winston threw zero or one interception versus the games where he threw two or more, which was interesting because I've heard that narrative get thrown out a couple of times and it, it actually isn't backed by the splits. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that Jameis Winston season is like, uh, it's going to be so unique when we look back on it years from now. And, and um, yeah, the effect, the relative effect that it's going to have on the wide receivers is going to be interesting. And, and you know, I, I guess I worry a little bit for Evans and Godwin, I, I, only because of the historic, um, the, the lack of a historic precedent for for quarterbacks at age 43. I, I think Vinny Testaverde is the only one who's ever made a start at 43. And that was the, you know, washed up Vinny Testaverde making some, I don't know, five or six emergency starts with the Panthers. And, uh, you know, but then again, uh, maybe avocado ice cream and uh, marriage to a supermodels are, are to a supermodel is the fountain of youth. And, uh, you know, we have to throw all that out for Brady. That's entirely possible. Speaking of old Patriots going south. How should we feel about Gronk, Dave, in redraft leagues? Is he a low-end tight end one, or is that underestimating him? Uh, I don't think that it's underestimating him. You know, it's actually uh, was an interesting thing for me. I think when I made my first pass on my redraft rankings, he came out around tight end 18 for me. Um, I thought about it more after started kind of working through what I might get doing projections. I did bump him up a little bit to around tight end 13. I think it was where I landed. I think he is a low tight end one, um, given that there will be touchdown potential for him, which I think for tight ends is one of the things that you try to target just because it is a tough position to know how things are going to fall out on a week to week basis. I think his larger impact though is going to be as a blocker for Tampa Bay. That's really what he's going to bring to the team on a weekly basis. Um, but just that touchdown opportunity and perhaps Brady relying on him while he starts to acclimate to the other players is enough to make Gronk on the season finish in that low tight end one range. Uh, but I'm not really going to go out on a limb and say that he's one of these players that you're necessarily going to be targeting as a weekly starter for you or a tight end that you would spend more draft capital on than you normally would for the position. If you're somebody like me, that tends to go after the position later in drafts. It's funny. I kind of started with the same sort of pessimism that you did putting my rankings together. And um, a big part of that was just, you know, the medical risk with Gronkowski. Here's a guy who could not stay healthy in his 20s, and now he's in his 30s. What is that going to be like? But then I sort of manually pushed him up when I thought about it and thought that if if injuries were the big concern, I mean, granted, he's not going to be throwing out 100-yard games week after week like he did in his heyday. But, uh, you know, as you said, still probably is going to be a, a you know, significant touchdown score and score TDs at a decent rate, given his comfort level with Brady and his size. Um, I just thought about it and thought that, you know, this is a guy who I think I would want to start at tight end if he's healthy. And if he's not healthy, you know, I can get some replacement value at tight end. I mean, granted, there's not always a lot on the waiver wire at tight end in midseason, but um, you know, you're not going to be buried with Gronk if he's hurt, if you're not having to invest a great deal of draft capital. And I think people are more realistic about where to draft him now and his ADP is going to be more reasonable here. So I guess I'm a little less pessimistic about him when I was, when I started out, who do you prefer in redraft this year, Godwin or Evans? Yeah, this is another tough one. I, I guess that I give the slight edge to Godwin. Um, as of now, I'm still expecting 
both Godwins and Evans to be top 10 fantasy wide receivers, maybe even both get into the top eight for me. Um, with, you know, maybe just a player or two separating them. I don't really have a strong feeling either way, not knowing which player Brady might prefer or in how they scheme things up, who's going to have the higher quality opportunity. And, you know, maybe it isn't either one of those players. It's not written in stone. Um, so I, I guess I just give the slight edge to Godwin, but I don't have a strong feeling either way. Yeah, I did look at your redraft rankings, but I can't remember. Do you recall if you had Godwin and Evans ranked adjacent to each other? Um, I think Godwin, I forget which player it is that sits between them. I think it might be DeAndre Hopkins that sits between them. But I remember that uh, I I ended up landing with Godwin um, just a little bit ahead of Evans with one player in between. Oh, okay. And if it's Hopkins uh, between Godwin and Evans, you're obviously still pretty high on Godwin. And it seem, it does seem like we should be putting Godwin ahead. He's younger, um, you know, and he, he most likely is going to play that slot role. And, and we know how, uh, you know, Brady has elevated slot guys in the past, Edelman, Welker. Um, but there's one more receiver in Tampa we should talk about, Dave. And uh, I'm a big fan of Tyler Johnson's game. And I know you like him as a prospect too. How do you feel about this landing spot for him? And could he be the slot guy in this offense? Yeah, I think that Tyler Johnson's another one of these players that might not be getting as much attention as they as they should. Of course, you know, like I've said a bunch of times now, it's such a strong class. It's easy to see how that happens. But I like Johnson uh, a fair amount just as a prospect. Now we have him in a situation where he gets to play with Brady behind two awesome wide receivers in an offense that figures to be good. And I think it's possible even as early as the rookie season, we see him playing that wide receiver three role on the team. Um, I don't know exactly what to expect of how they would use him because some of that will depend on how they deploy the multiple tight ends they have there. Um, but you know, 0.62 receiving dominator to sophomore at Minnesota, 25 touchdowns, 2,400 yards in the final two seasons is a little bit older, uh, had that exceptional college dominator. And I think what that builds up to is that, uh, you know, Godwin's contract expires in 2021. He's probably going to be expensive. They might not be able to keep him around. So it is possible that if he performs well in the rookie season, which I think he will get some opportunity, we could see him get inserted into this offense as soon as year two, which, you know, if people are feeling good about this Tampa Bay team with Brady there, maybe Brady's there that second year, or they address the quarterback situation some other way. But all of a sudden then, you know, his value has taken a, a pretty big step forward. Yeah. And it does look like, you know, year two is the most pragmatic estimation for for when he starts to pop but I, maybe there's a chance that he has a couple spike weeks this year um you know just because i i don't know if scotty miller or justin watson if either of those guys are going to be able to hold him off and i do think tyler johnson with the sort of game he has with his uh reputation as being one of the better route runners in this class that maybe he could be a guy who meshes with brady right away um just a guy who Brady can count on being at a certain spot at the right time, being where he's supposed to be. Uh, but then, of course, with the situation, and, and maybe we don't see these guys having the sort of training camp they're accustomed to, uh, you know, maybe we just have to downgrade rookies as a whole as far as our year one expectations. I guess that remains to be seen. Um, Dave, I do want to ask you about some of the articles you've written lately. But before I do, uh, how did you end up at Rotoviz? Yeah, so I want to say it was 2013. I started reading some of the stuff that like uh, Friedman at the time was working on and Fantasy Douche who started Rotoviz uh, had started up. And then I think it was actually late 2013 where the site actually like first came together and they were all writing together. And uh, like I was immediately hooked at the time. I found it so fascinating. Um, I had just started a job at the time, though, where I was working like 80 to 100 hours a week. Um, for anybody that's that started off as a CPA doing public accounting at a big firm, they'll, they'll know what that's like. So I wanted to get involved, but didn't have uh, the chance then. Um, fast forward a couple of years, and I had this drafting software 
that I've developed called the uh, the draft dashboard, which was all about organizing your draft, like removing noise and, and, and kind of drafting through a Rotoviz type of philosophy. Um, and I had advertised for that tool on Rotoviz radio. And then via that, I started talking with Fantasy Douche a little bit and said that I'd be interested in maybe writing some articles. So he was, you know, like, uh, just send me a sample and we'll see what we can get going. Um, sent that in pretty quickly just started devoting all of the time, like all of the excess free time that I had to just writing as many articles as I could. And then um, eventually Fantasy Douche stepped away. Sean took over. Um, I developed a friendship with Sean, started building some more tools for the site. And then, you know, eventually um, just decided that was where I was going to put up all of the stuff that I was doing. So the site that I had started um, kind of shifted away from that and just started putting up everything that I was doing entirely onto, onto Rotoviz. Now I've got to put you on the spot. Is is fantasy douche really just completely away, or was that like an alter ego for someone who is walking amongst <laughs> us now? Like I'm just yeah, no, fantasy douche is a uh, legitimate uh, real person who, as you might have gathered if you followed Rotoviz, is you know a really fascinating, very brilliant person um, who I believe was just so successful in some other avenues that it made sense for them to kind of follow some of their, their other passions and, and take their life that direction. Yeah. I just got to believe that he is like lurking somewhere. Um, you know, I've, and he is a, a brilliant guy and I've emailed with him a couple of times back in the day. And, uh, you know, he was just such a phenomenal presence on Twitter and I really do miss him. Um, but you know, he's left a great legacy, with Rotoviz, I mean, it's such a uh, an impressive think tank that he helped build there, and that you guys have uh, you know carried on. And certainly, Rotoviz, I think, is known for its willingness to go against the grain and challenge conventional wisdom. Do you think that sort of, I don't know, iconoclasm is pretty deeply ingrained in the company culture? <laughs> uh, fantastic word there. And I think that does uh, kind of summarize one of the key elements of the site, uh, which, you know, I definitely think back at the beginning of the site, that was a huge piece of it, uh, was kind of this pushing back on the consensus and not being afraid to ask questions about everything and question the convention. And the interesting thing is now, I think that would be a larger element of the site were not some of the impact that Rotoviz actually made on the industry. You know, a lot of the things that we had started talking about early on are now widely accepted in the lens of fantasy, you know, not just from our site, but from a lot has really changed. It's gone a lot more analytical. I think it's, you know, very forward looking. There's so many smart people getting involved all over the industry that now we don't need to have that iconoclasm you know a lot of the thought processes that we had are more widely accepted now but um you know i can tell you early on in the writing guide for rotoviz one thing that always stuck with me and i believe it was fantasy douche who had who had lined this up was that you know like there's there's okay articles there's good articles but great articles generally come from ideas that seems stupid or come from asking a question that seems stupid but when you actually look into it you realize leads to a great idea and you don't ask the question for the sake of being different you ask the questions because you want to explore everything and not be afraid to ask a question that seems stupid or put out an idea that seems stupid if you do the research and you realize that it actually is a good idea so I honestly, from getting involved in the site and being around people like that, um, you know, when I was still, you know, like mid twenties at the time, I think it's really allowed me to realize that I should be more open to different ideas, uh, you know, in every context of my life, be more willing to question, realize that I don't always have the answers and, you know, you don't always need to be right. Like you're going to have a more enriched point of view on everything if you're willing to explore it and go in with that open mind. Um, so I, I think that's still ingrained in the company culture. Um, it's just kind of now we're in a, a different situation in the whole industry than we were back in 2013. Yeah, it's funny what you said about, you know, pushing back uh, against sort of established wisdom and the, uh, you know, establish the run mentality and things have kind of moved that way. And, and maybe you guys were, you know, helping to, to 
push on that a little bit. And, uh, you know, I do, it's, it's funny in the early Rotoviz days, I can remember like, you know, you would see that sort of thinking and, and this was back in the Davis Matic days. It would be like Davis and a couple of the other Rotoviz guys would like, uh, it was almost like a pack of hyenas going after a zebra in the, uh, the African wild and just jumping on someone who had subscribed to that sort of outdated thinking and just, uh, it was kind of interesting. So um, I am curious, what are the internal communications like there? Are, are you guys constantly running ideas up the flagpole? And I mean, you sort of just mentioned some of that, but I mean, do you guys get in this spirited debate behind the scenes? Like, are you guys? Uh... <laughs> it's funny. There used to be, um, I would say a lot more spirited debate just via some of the personalities that we had around. Um, but you know, like we still have a lot of, um, like internal debates on, on the Slack channel that we have, it's kind of through a different lens. Like lots of times what somebody will do is they'll genuinely be curious about a player. Like an example was, I felt like the reaction to Clyde Edwards Hilaire landing in Kansas city was being overblown. So, you know, I went on Slack, I posted like somebody explained to me, like I'm five, why this is such an awesome landing spot. And then like somebody else explained to me why I'm right, that maybe we need to have, some um you know pushback to this and then it's cool because we always have people in that channel willing to just take one of the point of views and come up with all of the reasons why you should go either way so uh you know the, it, i i don't know if things are as spirited as they used to be when we had some of those real interesting personalities around uh 14 14 team mocker comes to mind for anybody that might yes. remember him <laughs> Um, he always was good at getting things riled up, but, uh, you know, there, there's still a lot of great communication in there. And what is, uh, your marriage to Friedman like? <laughs> so it's actually awesome. You know, the, the funniest part of the whole thing is, like I said, early on wanting to get involved in the site, I kept wanting the podcast to come out, wanting the podcast to come out for Road of for them to start a podcast. And then, you know, Matt and John Moore started Road of his radio, uh, and like at the time I'd wanted to, to reach out and see if I could help out. Now I'm actually hosting a podcast with him, which is crazy. But, um, you know, Matt's, it's awesome working with Matt because we're a lot alike in many ways. We have a lot of common interests, but I think that we still are like different enough that we can have disagreements. But the, the other thing about, about Freeman that I want to point out is that Matt is actually incredibly humble. Like he is a brilliant guy. He's so smart. I think he's one of the best at what he does. Uh, you know, he's so good at thinking on his feet, making terrific, terrific arguments, but you'll never see him throw his knowledge or how smart he is in, in anybody's face or, you know, act like he knows everything. Uh, you know, so he's a super interesting guy. It always cracks me up, though. I will see him. He has that that spirit of Rotoviz, which is he'll put something out and not worry about people pushing back and telling him he's stupid. And I'll see people push back with certain things on Twitter. And I'm just laughing to myself because... I know that Matt has thought through just about every angle on that and like has researched it more than anybody would ever know. So like it, it always cracks me up, but uh, yeah, you know, being partners with Freeman, uh, it, it's pretty funny, but I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. You have to be pretty fearless to come out, to be the first guy to come out as like anti Antonio Brown. Exactly. <laughs> He's like the number exactly. one. And um, yeah, I, he really is, a, you know, I've, I've had him on this show and that was just a great conversation and you and Matt have terrific chemistry. And yet like Matt also did these amazing shows with the Podfather Matt Kelly and, you know, Matt could not be, uh, you know, more different than probably you and I, as far as like podcast personality. And, like, you know, Matt was like the perfect straight man for him. It was just, yeah, so uh, you're lucky that you get to work with Matt on a regular basis. He is a keeper for sure. Um, you recently posted your first set of redraft rankings for 2020, Dave. And in your introduction, you discussed why you don't like rankings. So why don't you like ranking? What do you have against innocent rankings, Dave? Um, you know, I have a fair amount against them, I guess. And I'll try to be brief here, but I did actually, I came with some of my bullet points from the article, but I think that the first thing I want to mention is that I think they too often get viewed by people as the final answer or just the easy thing that you refer to. You have those rankings, that's what you go with, and that's the end of the story. And 
I don't like that because at Rotoviz, we spent so much time talking about different team building philosophies, roster construction, ways to approach drafting that get lost in rankings. You also don't get the separation of players, so rankings can be really misleading. Right, There might be 20 rankings separating my wide receiver 36 and my wide receiver 44, but I might think that there's not a great deal of difference between the two. Of course, you're not going to know that um, just from looking at my rankings. Or conversely, there might be a tear break at my RB5 and my RB6, but it's hard to communicate in rankings, right? So you can get caught in that rankings trap, I call it, uh, being that they're viewed as the final answer. Uh, I also think they make it hard to compare players within positions or sometimes across positions uh, unless you're very clearly defining how you're approaching your rankings. And then the biggest thing for me is people that haven't sat there and gone through the process of painstakingly going through rankings might not get that, at least for me, when you get to that like player 150 range. There's a lot of compelling reasons that player 150 could easily be player 175 and player 175 could be player 150. Um, and so we view them as having this kind of like linear relationship, but I think that, um, the difference separating players really closes as you get farther along in your rankings. So uh, that just worries me if people reading them. And then I think sometimes if, even if you're averaging rankings from different people on your site, if you don't have a very well-defined goal of what you're trying to do with the rankings, they can be misleading. And then I also think that with rankings, People tend to worry too much about being off from the consensus, which I think might be a problem in doing them. Um, one could argue that maybe you don't want to have rankings too far off from the consensus. But again, if we don't know what the person's going for when they're building those rankings, I, I think that can lead to a problem for the person using them. Yeah, and those are all fair points. Um, yeah, especially I think that sometimes the gap between even wide ranges of players and you, you came up with a pretty apt range. I think when you said what wide receiver 26 to 44, which, uh, I have restlessly shuffled guys around in that range. Um, I would finish wide receiver rankings and then turn off the computer and the next day, look at them and just like shuffle around the people in that basket for, uh, you know, what seemed like just a totally new order for those guys. But I, I get that. Um, I also get that, uh, you know, texture of a roster matters. And I think, you know, there are some people who do tiers and they sort of group the tiers by, uh, you know, based on floor, like the stable floor guys, the, uh, you know, high ceiling, all or nothing types. Um and I get that. And I don't necessarily do that. And I don't believe like guys have to be tiered like that. And I might have a stable floor guy right next to a, you know, hit or miss high upside guy. Um, I guess the one thing I would say in defensive rankings is that, you know, ultimately in drafts, uh, you know, assuming it's not auction, it's snake draft, you do have to make these binary choices. And, you know, we're trying to help people do that. Um, but I agree. There's a lot of context that's that's lost in all this. Um, what was really useful in your rankings article was the uh, listing that you did of one running back and one wide receiver you believe to be vastly underrated. So do you mind naming those two players? Yeah, um, we'll start with the wide receiver because um, I, I have a stronger conviction on this one, especially given some news that came out on the running back. But in April, Jarvis Landry's ADP um, in FFPC drafts was wide receiver 32. I have him, if I do go through and do a ranking system, closer to 19. I mean, this is a player that finished 35 in his rookie season. Since then, um, he's averaged a PPR per game finish of wide receiver 16 since. Even if you remove that really stellar uh, 2017 season where he's the wide receiver five and you include his rookie season, Landry has averaged a wide receiver ranking of 22. I get that those seasons are behind us, but I do think if you look forward to 2020 in the context of Cleveland, it's hard for me to see how he ends up with a, a ranking that's closer to wide receiver 32. I mean, he's played 16 games every season of his career, nearly 15 points per game last season, was ninth in targets, 22 in air yards, 12 in weighted opportunity. 
I think that people don't like that his point accumulation last year it was kind of sporadic in that most of it came in three games, but still, um, he was 15th in expected points per game, and the expected points weren't as sporadic as just looking at the points that he did score would lead you to believe. Uh, and the other thing, too, that I've seen get floated around is there's kind of a narrative that um, Kareem Hunt getting involved in the receiving game could hurt Landry. But um, actually, if you look at Landry's games where Hunt was involved, he actually scored significantly more fantasy points, which contradicts that narrative. So I think that at least right now, he is a great value um, that I've been trying to get on my best ball teams. I love that you listed him. And um, I, I was kind of anti Jarvis Landry a couple of years ago, and I've so come around on him. I'm glad you mentioned some of his scoring numbers in terms of points per game, because, uh, you know, you've got the the durability, the fact that he's never missed a game, but he is not just a compiler, a guy who winds up at the, you know, in the top 20 wide receiver scoring merely because he keeps grinding out 16 game seasons. Like he is actually an impactful guy on a points per game basis. And he's done it now in a couple of different environments and not exactly thriving offensive environments. Like he is, uh, sort of, you know, the weed that grows in the crack uh, in the sidewalk, you know, like he flourishes in tough spots. And um, also the fact that there's just not much wider, you know, there's Odell Beckham and and he's the one. And if he's healthy, he's going to demand a a large target share. But who is the three there? I mean, Damian Ratley, Rashard Higgins, Donovan Peoples-Jones, like no one is going to push these guys. You know, also what I loved, sorry, not to jump in here, but what I love to bring up too is the fact that um, Landry and Beckham played alongside each other in college and Landry actually was the more productive player when they were both at LSU, which I think, you know, most people will acknowledge how talented of a wide receiver Beckham is. But now that we've seen them both in college and we've seen them playing together in the pros, even if you think Beckham is better. I mean, it's impossible not to acknowledge how talented Landry has to be to keep pace with him. Right. And, and you know, we had pigeonholed him as this, like, unique short area receiver in Miami, and, and that wasn't the case at all last year. We averaged, what, 14.6 or something a, a catch. Um, all right, so who's the running back, Dave? So the running back, and, and this I, I wrote about before it was clear that Rashad Penny's injury from last season might be more serious than it had seemed. Um, but I think what what they came down to for me was we saw if people remember, I think it was week 12 and 13 or, or maybe 11 and 12. He had 19 and 27 points. Those came in games against really strong defenses and games in which Chris Carson also played really well. So what this signals to for me is that you have a team Seattle that rushes 20, they had 28 rushes per game last year. Maybe Petty comes in and takes some of that and can contribute on a weekly basis. Maybe Carson misses time. And then you have this ample opportunity there, you know, very strong expected points per game. Carson was 11th among running backs in expected points per game. The point there is just that you have Rashad Penny who's going at 53 in best ball with the opportunity to contribute for you in some weeks and to make a very big impact for you in weeks if Carson does miss time. Um, So to to me, he's one of these players that there's upside both in his standalone value and in that committee value. And we've seen that, um, you know, he can really deliver. So I don't think it's, it's out of the realm of possibility that Penny really challenges Carson if he is healthy. Of course, that injury now is problematic, but for a guy that you're getting in that 53 range, uh, it's hard to find somebody who thinks could break as well for as Penny. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if he is able to stay off pop to start the season, um, I agree he's value there. And maybe, maybe, maybe people are writing him off because of the injury and that ADP moves up if there's some positive health news, but, um, you know, I, I agree that he is still a pretty good prospect who just hasn't quite percolated yet, but really could. Um, all right. One final question before I cut you loose, Dave. It seems like there's been some, oh, I don't know, Austin Eckler backlash among the fantasy football intelligentsia lately. And uh, checking Rotoviz, I see that Eckler's fan ball ADP and best ball dress right now is RB12. 
16th overall. Does that seem too high, too low, or about right? I think that that's uh, too high in that I think <laughs> – I'll say it differently because sometimes – you know, another thing about uh, – this doesn't actually go to the rankings, but I never know if we should be saying low or high. Anyway, I think that uh, it's very easily – or it's a possibility, let me say it like that, that Eckler is a top six fantasy running back in this season. So I think that if you can get him at the RB12, you're getting a pretty good deal. I mean, this is a player that – and I know Melvin Gordon has been a bit of an inefficient player, um, but I think that at every point in Eckler's usage for the Chargers, he's been better than Melvin Gordon. And I think that people view Gordon as at least a better than average back. Maybe that's kind of changed. But when Eckler plays, he's been an RB1 44% of the time. Um, he was 11th in... Um, expected points per game, I think, or, or might have been tied even with Carson last season. Keep in mind that Gordon was still there for some of the season. He was two in running back targets, has the potential to win you weeks. Uh, we saw five games over 25 points last season. A lot of that did come when Gordon wasn't there. Now, we could be concerned about the change at quarterback. We know that a player like Tyrod Taylor, uh, who is a passer that has the tendency to scramble and run, that could impact Eckler negatively. Um, but again, like just how good he was last season, and now you're taking Gordon out of the equation, I, I, I think that he should be able to outplay that RB12. Maybe he even has the possibility to go for a thousand and a thousand if he plays the whole season. I mean, probably not. But but the final thing that I think is worth noting is if you look at the games where Gordon played uh, versus the split for Eckler where Gordon wasn't in, in the split, you still have 12.4 points per game for Eckler out of the split. He's at 21. Um, you know, so even if you kind of give a a, a a decrease to that and you're still at like 18 points per game for me seems like a real possibility. So, um, you know, I think that Eckler could be a little bit of a steal. Yeah, it's interesting that that there's been sort of this um, shift from him being everyone's darling, the, the uh, you know, favored son of the analyst crowd last year. And now it's almost like, you know, a heel turn in professional wrestling where all of a sudden everyone's off. Austin Eckler, he's turned heel and, uh, you know, no one wants to get on him, but I I'm kind of with you. I mean, like this is a pretty special player as far as what he can do with the ball in his hands, uh, what he can contribute in the passing game. And, you know, now he's competing for carries on early downs with the likes of Josh Kelly and, uh, Justin Jackson rather than Melvin Gordon. So, um, you know, I, I think we can say he's going to have a pretty good stake uh, you know, as a, a three down back, you know, certainly those guys are going to cut into the load a little, but maybe not quite as much as Melvin did. Uh, well, Dave, thanks a lot for being here. I really enjoy your articles and your pods and all your work on Rotoviz. Uh, thanks for coming on with me. Um, yeah, that's Dave Cabin. Find him on Twitter at Dave Cabin FF. And uh, before you run, Dave, want to tell people why they should subscribe to Rotoviz? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and thanks for having me on. It was a blast talking with you. Um, I, I guess, you know, Rotoviz, we're just continually adding uh, so many tools. Mike Beers has been crushing it. Um, you know, a lot of fantastic writers. You have Sean Siegel, Blair Andrews, who has some of the, the best articles you're going to find out there. Curtis Patrick brought over the uh, Dynasty Command Center. New writer Sam Wallace has been killing it. There's Hassan Rahim, uh, John Lipinski, you know, some veterans. Basically, a lot of people that are smarter and better at this than I am, um, and I think that we just continue to keep putting out great stuff. So, um, you know, um, I did. I just can't say enough about the site. I think it's it's made me a smarter person in general. So I'm just thankful to be a part of it, and I think that uh, if people subscribe and check out the site. They'll be you know pretty pumped with what they get. Well, you're too modest about your own role, Dave, but uh, I agree with everything you said. I'm a subscriber myself, and it is well worth the modest investment. So. Uh, Dave, keep up the great work. Uh, thanks again for coming on and uh, stay safe, my friend. Thank you. You too, sir. And that's it for the show, everyone. Let me once again thank this week's guest, Mr. Dave Cabin of Rotoviz. And seriously, do check out the Rotoviz radio podcast with Dave and Matt Friedman, two really smart guys talking about fantasy football. If you like this show, there is a 99.9% .9 chance you're going to like that show too. And as mentioned earlier, 
You can find Dave on Twitter at Dave Cabin, C-A-B-A-N-F-F. And speaking of people with Rotoviz podcasts, let me thank my producer, Mr. Colm Kelly. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. Congratulations to Calm and podcast partner Sean Siegel. They just aired the 100th anniversary episode of the Rotoviz Overtime Pod, and quite a show it was indeed, with special appearances from Rotoviz alumni Ben Gretsch, Davis Maddock, Peter Overzet, and Pat Corain, who all weighed in with some bold predictions for members of this year's rookie class. Rotoviz Overtime is a terrific listen, and I urge you to check it out. And kudos once again to Calm and Sean for reaching the 100-episode milestone. A special thank you to my colleague, Melissa Jacobs. Find her on Twitter at TheFootballGirl. And be sure to check out Melissa's website, TheFootballGirl.com, where you can find my freshly updated 2020 redraft rankings. And finally, my sincere thanks to all of you. You have my deepest gratitude and, well, I suppose my gratitude could get even a little bit deeper if you would be so kind as to rate and review Fits on Fantasy, which really helps out the podcast. Uh, But thank you all for being here with me. I hope you and your loved ones are doing well throughout all of this viral madness. Hang in there, my friends. Talk to you next week. Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700.